you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save us and yourself. But the others rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me, When you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. I was five years old. I was crying for what felt like hours on the shower floor. It was the first time I was confronted with a reality so stark and sobering confronted with the reality of death. Remember, it was the first time where I had this thought that one day my life would end. I cried to mum saying, I don't want to die. Now, up until this point, I hadn't really grasped the concept of death. I mean, sure, I'd kind of you know, let a couple of my goldfish die. I'd, I'd lost a few lives in my Sonic the Hedgehog video game. But it hadn't occurred to me that my life had this finite existence. Fast forward 30 years. If I'm honest with myself, there are many times that I live as if I won't die. I get so caught up in the here and now. Finances, fitness, Facebook, footy. Things that are so temporal, so fleeting. We pack our lives with things, with experiences, with dopamine hits from our smartphones that just give us that bit more pleasure. As Brad Pitt said in Fight Club, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And how much more true is that? That was more than 20 years ago. How much more true is that in the era of social media? For many of us, the only time we see someone die is on a screen. 
Yeah, whether it be Minecraft or a Marvel movie, it can be a, a desensitizing experience. Many of us who are young, what we think, we assume, yeah, of course we'll have more time. Death, it's a future me problem. That's how our society conditions us. Yeah, 30-year mortgages, superannuation, retirement, all these concepts, they're relatively modern concepts, teaching us to think, yeah, there's more time. We can take charge and control of our life. But the reality is, we don't know. Just last Sunday, I was uh, guest speaking at a church on the sunny coast, part of our, our Acts 29 family, and tragically, uh, they'd just been grieving the loss. Less than two weeks ago, uh, a young girl, 28 years old, uh, died in a freak accident climbing Mount Biwa. I could tell you the story of a former boss uh, at an old church where I interviewed them on a Wednesday night newcomers event. By Saturday, they're in hospital and they were gone. I could tell another story of a perfectly healthy 23-year-old man I used to work with who went missing uh, on a work trip for eight weeks. Uh, no one knew where he was and then they found his body tragically later. Now, many of us in this room will have stories like this. And this morning, I want us to consider a question that our culture doesn't really want to answer or perhaps doesn't know how to answer. The question is this, how do I face death? Now, I don't apologize for, for speaking about a heavy topic this morning. In fact, if I did not talk about death on Good Friday, there'd be something to apologize about. But I do want to acknowledge that it is a heavy topic. And, and I know that, that some of us in this room, we've got loved ones, um, we've got friends, family that, that are facing this head on. We'd love to, to pray with you. We'd love to, to help you and point you to the hope that we have in Jesus. It's a topic that we can come with hope because of Easter. We're going to be looking in particular at this account of these two men who are up on the cross uh, as Mel read with Jesus. Mel read earlier from a book, the book of Luke, which is one of the books in the Bible. The Bible is not just one, but 66 books written, um, sort of like a mini library, written by over 40 different authors, three continents over a thousand year period, different genres. And we've got four historical biographies of the most important person who ever lived. We've got four biographies. This is one of them. Um, you know, Jesus, he's the most significant yet controversial figure in history, literally divides the calendar, AD, BC. His life, his teachings, his miracles, the death, the resurrection, uh, this news went viral. Was it fake news? What was going on? And so this guy, Luke, he was an educated man, he was a doctor, he got commissioned to find out exactly what happened, uh, to find out, is, this, is all this stuff true? Is it legitimate? He examined the sources, conducted interviews, and now what we have, as Mel read from this morning, is the Gospel of Luke. Now, maybe some of you, you're skeptical uh, of the life of Jesus. Is the Bible reliable? Maybe you were kind of brought along by a friend this morning. Uh, if that's you, hey, so welcome here. Uh, we hope you feel welcome and loved and you find something helpful for wherever you're at uh, with your spiritual journey. But um, if that's you, I've got a gift for you. I've got a gift for you. Uh, this book, it's called The Case for Easter. You can grab one of them on your way out at the info desk. There's, there'll be some hot crust buns there as well. And uh, this book, um, it was written by a skeptical man who, um, whose wife became a Christian, 
Uh, he thought that was a bit weird. And, and so he was a, a forensic journalist, worked for the Chicago Tribune, and he, he uh, kind of put on his journalistic hat and then he, he kind of explored the evidence. And he wrote a book called Case for Crisis, kind of a sequel, shorter one, called Case for Easter. Love to, to give, give that to you as well. And we'd love you to keep exploring uh, faith as well with us. We've got a series kicking up in a couple of weeks called Introducing Jesus. Again, more information at the info desk as well, but a place to explore. But back to Luke. So Luke, uh, about a third of the way through uh, his volume, his biography of Jesus, there's this great turning point, and it tells us that what the life of Jesus is all on about. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, uh, Luke records this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And so the second two-thirds, roughly, of the book uh, is recording this journey where Jesus has kind of you know, chucked a Yui and he's walking, literally walking, facing his death. You know, he taught in a controversial and deliberate way to even expedite his death. He even planned his death. He was calling out hypocrisy in religious leaders, even went to their capital, Jerusalem, into the temple, flipped the tables over, called out the leaders, accused people of even sending people closer to hell than actually pointing them to the hope of heaven. But even more controversial than that, it was people he hung out with. There was foreigners, tax collectors, prostitutes, but even more controversial than that was his claim to be God. The religious elite, they were out to get him. And so on the Thursday night, right before he was arrested, he was praying. He was praying in this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying and he knew it was coming. Uh, Dr. Luke, he he records the the psychological trauma that he was facing. Uh, In Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 44, he says this, And being... In agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And while this is all happening, uh, Jesus is about to be backstabbed by one of his closest followers, Judas, who just a couple of hours before he'd shared a meal, broke bread with, prayed with, sung a hymn. He sold, told the authorities where he were for perhaps not more than a few hundred dollars. Then another one of his even closer followers, a guy called Peter, he had the opportunity to stand up for him and vouch for him. He denied three times that he even knew him. After this, Jesus is blindfolded. He's, he's punched, he's mocked, he's spat on, brought before the council called the, San, the Sanhedrin who, who rush and do this dodgy trial. And maybe you've had some some builders kind of rush and do a dodgy job before Easter or Christmas. This is sort of similar. There's like a big, important festival, holiday called the Passover. And they want to celebrate that, so they kind of want to get this thing done before then. And there's there's a whole bunch, more than 10 reasons why this trial's dodgy. I'll just give you a couple. They weren't even allowed to legally meet at night, yet they did on Thursday night. A trial for a capital offense, it wasn't allowed to happen the day before a festival day, though it did. Uh, The trial was meant to take more than one day. Uh, so they could actually conduct it properly and get witnesses and cross-examine and allow the defendant to speak. All that stuff didn't happen. And this one, uh, the high priest who was presiding over this, he's not allowed to tear his clothes. But you know what? What did Caiaphas do? He tore his clothes. But this is just at a council level. And the council, maybe like today, they have no real power. 
They had to escalate it to the state. And they called a weak-willed governor named Pilate. And in his examination, Pilate finds Jesus innocent. And he doesn't want to do any of this. He wants to wash his hands clean. He, he kind of kicks it down the road to another guy called Herod. And Herod again finds him innocent. And so he says, hey, Pilate, your problem. Uh, and Pilate's like, all right, I'm going to release this guy. But then the religious authorities, they stir up the crowd and they convince him, they convince Pilate, this weak-willed guy, to release instead a terrorist, a guy called Barabbas, who was a murderer. And these crowds, they're saying about Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus, again, he's whipped, beaten, spat on. In a mocking way, had his crown of thorns shoved on his head. He's physically now a broken man, can barely walk. Uh, he's forced to attempt to carry this huge weight of lumber, this cross up a hill. He can't do it. They have to get this guy, Simon of Cyrene, to help him. Eventually, he's placed up on the cross. And these pegs are speared through his wrist. These pegs, they're probably thicker than your thumb jam through his ankles as well. And when he wants to take a breath, he has to lift himself up like that and go down again. Crucifixion. It was a, a public spectacle of shame designed to inflict as much suffering as possible. Even the word crucifixion, uh, it, it, um, cru the word crucifixion is where we get the word excruciating from. Excruciating, out of the cross, literally, is what it means. It was done as in front of a crowd, seen as entertainment for many, and and typically women, children, and Roman citizens would not be crucified. Uh, it was typically uh, seen as as brutal, as awful, and shameful. But Jesus, he's there. He's not alone. He's with two other men on the cross. They were unlike Jesus, real criminals. They would have gone properly through the Roman court system, not succumb to religious pressure. Uh, other biographies that we have of Jesus call them thieves. And that language is probably not strong enough, uh, more than just you know, stealing bread to feel the feed the family. Um, early church accounts describe them as violent, possibly murderers. Uh, other commentators suggest they were like Barabbas and, and terrorists, insurrectors, conspiring against the, the Roman government. What's clear, though, is that these two men, either side of Jesus, are staring death in the face. Now, they probably weren't beaten up as much as Jesus, maybe had a few more hours or maybe a day or two to live. But for us, it's my first point this morning, us, we too have a death sentence. And for most of us here this morning, I suspect that death probably doesn't seem imminent for us. But there is a tragic reality that this is what we are all facing. Modern medicine has come a long way and helped us delay death, but no one's been able to cure death. We're all facing this. We're all facing a terminal illness. The great uh, civil rights activist and pastor Martin Luther King Jr. said this, that every man must do two things alone. He must do his own believing and his own dying. Right now, we will face death, a reality that we cannot run away from. 
And the Bible's very aware of this. Uh, one of the songs of the Bible, Psalm 90, um, says that we should ask God to teach us to number our days. Number our days. Uh, there's a movie, it's a little bit cheesy, maybe partly because it's got Justin Timberlake in it. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called In Time. Anyone seen it? Yeah, it probably shows why Justin Timberlake shouldn't act. But anyway, um, in this movie, it's like the concept actually, in this movie, um, the currency is, is time. And, uh, and what, what happens is everyone has the amount of time they have left uh, on their forearms. And so the rich, they've got you know, millions of hours left, whereas the poor, maybe only a couple. It's a helpful sort of clarifying perspective. Imagine if you walked around and you knew when you were going to die. I'm sure you would take your death more seriously. But Christianity offers something more than just perhaps what's obvious if we think for a little bit, that yes, we are going to die. It gives us meaning as to why death is so painful. Whereas the world um, seeks to kind of blur what death is or soften it or just sort of make it part of the great circle of life. Now, one poet I read uh, this week says, For life and death are one, even as the river and the sea are one. Don't even know what that means, but it's wrong, right? There's clear boundaries between life and death. The Bible and our own experience uh, can vouch for that. I've seen people take their last breath. They're no longer there. Now, my kids, my girls ask where my grandpa has gone. There's a definitive boundary to someone's life and death. It's awful. It sucks. Contrastingly, Christian author Tim Keller, he says this about death. To say, oh, death is just natural, is to harden and perhaps kill a part of your heart's hope that makes you human. We know deep down that we're not like the trees or grass. We're made to last. We don't want to be ephemeral, to be inconsequential. We don't want to just be a wave upon the, upon the sand. The deepest desires of our hearts are for love that lasts. Death, it's not the way it ought to be. It's abnormal. It's not a friend. It isn't right. This isn't truly part of the circle of life. The Bible describes death as an enemy, an enemy that causes us not only separation from each other, but more profoundly, separation from God. And this is our default state that we're born into. We're born into a curse, into a fallen world where death is the default. But we as humans, we're not just innocent victims in this. We aren't passive forces to evil and death. We're actually responsible. The word the Bible uses to describe this is sin. Now, sin's a weird word. Uh, we sort of don't really use it in our culture. And when we do, it's sort of like this kind of indulgence. You know, what's your kind of naughty, sinful, guilty pleasure? Maybe, you know, eating dark chocolate at midnight or, I don't know, your, whatever your desires are. But God has given a much sharper definition for sin. Now, sin is this. It's rejecting God. It's rebelling against our Creator. It's saying, I know better. I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to push you to the side. In fact, I'm going to be the king and lord of my life. I'm going to do my thing, and I'm not going to give you the glory or the recognition. And it's not always a conscious thing. It can be a subtle thing, just living life without God as God, not following his way. But if God is real, and I'm convinced that he is, that then we ought to be living our life according to his way, 
according to his rules and commands, with him as Lord and King and highest authority. But the reality is that we, we don't. We fall short. A book of the Bible uh, called Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church in Rome, and he says this, bluntly, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. He continues, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, you might be thinking here this morning, yeah, okay. Like, I get that no one's perfect, but that's a huge deal. Why? Because God says it is. A couple of chapters later, Paul will say in this same letter, for the wages of sin is death. The wages, you know, what you earn, the result of your sin, which everyone commits, is death. See, God is perfectly pure. He's good. He's just and he's right. And he cannot even tolerate just a little bit of evil. It's sort of like the sun. It's our source of light. And yet it's pure light in a sense. You can't just stare at it directly. God is pure. You can't be too close to him with evil in your presence and live because of our sinful state. So back to this story. Remember, we've got these two criminals left and right of Jesus on the cross. They are facing death. But we too are just like them. And the word criminal, it's quite confronting. And perhaps we, 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 th- we think we might not have done something worthy to be punished by capital punishment. And it's true that, yeah, all sin is not the same. Um, not all sin has the same effects and consequences. But all of us, God says, are sinful and all of us are deserving of his punishment. We're all falling short of his standards, his rule. We all think we know better. And so, on Good Friday, the news is that we are all facing this death sentence. This is a problem. And the message of, of Christianity, though, it's not those who, who have and those who haven't sinned, you know, the good guys go to heaven. No, no. It's not try harder and you'll be saved. If you do a good enough job, God will you know, let you in. That doesn't work. You know, like, where's the line? Like, what's good enough? Is it like 50%, 80%, 99%? of how good you think you are, you're not at 100%. You know that. There's only one man, one person, whoever was. That's Jesus. Enter Jesus. Alongside with these two criminals on the cross. You know, one of these criminals, uh, he recognizes a few things about Jesus. Uh, but one thing that he recognizes is that Jesus was innocent. And he says in verse 22 that this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus was perfect. He perfectly obeyed God's law. Never lied and never, st- never stole. Was never a jerk to his siblings. Uh, he humbled himself, never made himself look good. Hey, we've got, uh, we've got a bunch of kids here today, which is great. Uh, hey, kids, if you're here, can you guys make some noise? Yeah, there we go. There we go. And Whenever you want kids to make noise, that they don't. And whenever you want them to be quiet, they make noise. Why is that? Um, but a question that I like asking kids is this. Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Now, it seems like a simple question at first, but if you start to think about it, it's complicated. It's, it's got layers to it. You could say the religious leaders, that they killed Jesus. 
Um, you could say it was the Roman government. They were the ones that actually had the authority to it. They caved to the pressure. The crowds crucify him. They were the ones responsible. Judas, he betrayed him, sold him out. Another level, um, it, was, it was God. Um, God was actually responsible on one level. In fact, Peter, the same guy who, who denied Jesus three times, he, wrote, uh, he, he preached a sermon just a few weeks after Jesus died and rose again. And he says to the religious authorities in Acts chapter 2, he says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But you crucified and killed, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's by the plan of God, and yet people killed and crucified him. God is in control, and yet and he planned Jesus' death. And Jesus himself, he was complicit and even active in killing himself. Why? Why? Well, there's even another force at work. And it's actually this, that we sentence Jesus to death. You and I, we are responsible. How does that work? We live 2,000 years later. Like, do we really have agency in something, an event that happened so long ago? Well, as we've seen, that the wages, what we earn from sin is death. That's the consequence but God has a plan. God has a response to our death. What is his plan? How does he deal with death? Well, he deals with death through death. His son Jesus enters into the world on a mission, not primarily to make the world a nicer place or to teach some values, to set an example of love. There's some truth in all of these things, but the reason why he came was to die. And God's plan to deal with our sin is to kill his own son. In fact, 700 years before the life of Jesus, uh, the prophet Isaiah, he, he talks about uh, God's plan and he talks about Jesus. In fact, we, we read it um, and he read it for us this morning. I'm just going to read it in the NLT, slightly uh, easier transi- uh, translation to understand. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Because of us, God sent, sentenced Jesus to death. So we have sentenced Jesus to death. The song we sung uh, just before, um, I didn't even know we were going to sing it. I wrote this down. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Why did Jesus die on the cross? It was because of our sin. We're responsible. He dies this brutal, barbaric death where his bones are broken. But it's more than just a physical death. It's a spiritual death. Have a look with me at Jesus' last words recorded in the book of Luke, verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Jesus commits his spirit to God the Father because he's spiritually paying for sin. 
God has, has cosmic eternal purposes on the cross. Jesus is far more than just a martyr or, or an example. He's taking the wrath, the anger, the fury, the judgment of God. He's spiritually being punished by his Father for our sin, taking our sentence, which is far more than just a physical death. It's a spiritual one. Mel read that the temple curtain tore in two. It's not like kind of one of these curtains. It's kind of thicker than your palm. And it was this barrier, like a big keep out sign, kind of protecting the presence of God, where God dwelt in the temple from the people. But then once this temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, it symbolized that actually we could be right with God. We could be friends with God. We can enter into his presence and live because of Jesus. The barrier had been taken, has been taken away. What does this all mean for us as we wrap up? Well, we've looked at the question, how do I face death? We all have a death sentence. We have sentenced Jesus to death. And finally, our response, there's two ways to die. Remember on the, on the cross, there's two men with Jesus, two criminals. Look, we don't know much about their backstory. Some have speculated, but we do know that they've fallen short of the glory of Rome. Their wages of their rebellion that's led them to be punished, it's death. However, the way they respond, it's quite contrasting. They both see Jesus, who's been beaten up, probably more than them. Uh, they both hear him pray this ridiculous prayer. Father, forgive them. They're the people that have put him there. Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They both hear the rulers. Uh, they mock him. They say he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen one. Uh, then at this time, they see soldiers mocking him. Uh, coming up and offering him sour wine to drink so that he can live just a little bit longer to kind of delay the punishment and the pain. The soldiers also, in a sarcastic tone, say to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Hey, good luck with that one, Jesus. They spit on him. They walk away. They laugh. And the first guy, uh, early, church, early church traditions, they, they, call, they call him Gestas. I'll just give him that name just to personalize him. Uh, seeing how all the soldiers and leaders respond, this guy Gestas, he says to Jesus in verse 39, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Gestas, he repeats what others have said in their scoffs and insults. He follow, follows the pattern of the world. He has no spirit of, of brokenness or, or guilt or admission of wrong, acknowledgement of sin or humility. He sees Jesus as maybe just my one last chance just to get away with this. He didn't see him as a king to be, to be followed, let alone worshipped. Never entered his mind that he should say sorry or change. The second guy, early church fathers call him Demas. Uh, Do you not fear God, he says rebukes him. He says, what are you talking about? Don't you fear God? We're under the same sentence, you and I. And we indeed are justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, this guy Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. Like, what are you talking about? Demas, he fears God. God's real for him. He's the creator. He recognized that he is a sinner before a holy God. And, and the cross, it was a fair punishment, Demas says, for his sin. It's like, yeah, I deserve this. I know what I did. He doesn't try to avoid it. And so as Demas, as he faces death, uh, the reality for him becomes clearer. 
And Demas, he also acknowledges the righteousness of Jesus. He says, hey, this guy Jesus has done nothing wrong. He's good. In fact, he's been, he is to be trusted. And finally, in verse 42, uh, Demas says to Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Your kingdom. He acknowledges the kingship of Jesus. This guy Demas, he wasn't baptized. He wasn't part of a church. Kind of didn't serve on a roster. Probably didn't own a Bible. He, might have, he didn't really have a thorough theological understanding of how this all worked. He didn't have all the answers, and yet he responds to Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, Demas, truly, I say to you that this day you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise. Oh, what a breath of fresh air after thinking about the weight of death. Jesus is saying to Demas that you will be saved, that this isn't the end for you. You'll be with me in heaven, in God's glory, in his eternal party forever. You, know, you might die physically in a few hours or days, but this is not the end. There's so much more to offer. Paradise. There'll be no more suffering, no more crying or pain. This guy Gestus, he was just looking out for himself. You know, he was following the ways of the world, didn't respond like Demas did. He didn't receive this offer of paradise that was on the table. Instead of paradise, he was facing punishment. Not because he was any worse than Demas, but because he didn't respond. He didn't acknowledge his sin, his guilt, his need for a savior, the kingship of Jesus. And so where are you in this story? Are you like Demas, who, who has or have acknowledged your, your sin, your brokenness, uh, your need for a savior? Have you acknowledged that Jesus is Lord? Do you fear God? Or are you like Gestus? You know, he's perhaps drifting, following the patterns of this world, oblivious to the eternal realities that face you. Yes, yeah, so the good news on one level is that you probably have more time to respond than these guys. And you might even have some real questions, important questions to wrestle with. We want you to, to wrestle with those questions, come explore with us, but hey, don't let these be excuses to delay, to put off your decision. In a few minutes, I'm going to pray a prayer uh, that, that Jesus would remember us in his kingdom. The paradise is on offer for you, and it's all about what Jesus has done. Now, for those of us, that's many of us in this room who are follows Jesus, who are trusting in him, who are like Demas, uh, who have already put our trust in Jesus. Let us be encouraged today on this incredible day. Our king, he understands death. He defeated death. May our hearts be warmed and rejuvenated this Easter. And may we rejoice, especially on Resurrection Sunday, that he has risen. Let's celebrate with the Lord's people and, and, um, and may we live life in light of this beautiful hope that we have. I'm going to wrap up uh, this morning with the story of my friend Beck. Now, Beck, sadly, she died in her 20s. It would have been her birthday just last week. At age 21, a perfectly healthy Young girl gets diagnosed with an extremely rare form of kidney cancer. Only a handful of people in the world have. 
uh, back, you know, she was one of the sweetest, kindest, most gentle people that I have ever met. She managed to finish her law degree, yet was never able to work full time. Had a boyfriend for a little while, but was never able to be married. Loved kids and never had her own. And yet she had the opportunity to face death and share on her blog her incredible confidence in her king. This is one of the last things that she wrote just weeks before her death at age 29. I'll just read this for you. It's a little bit of a long quote. She says, There has been immense suffering, but also immense joy. It wasn't until a few years before my diagnosis that I became a Christian. And in the years since, there's been a lot of stretching and challenging of my faith on many levels, including intellectual, emotional, and spiritual. However, I'm convinced that there is greater meaning to this life than the things we can see and touch. And the Christian gospel has allowed me to make sense of this beautiful and heartbreaking world. I believe Jesus' words. I grieve for the things I'll miss out on this life, and I'm frustrated by time that was wasted. While there's no good age to have cancer, a diagnosis in your early 20s comes with its own particular set of challenges and complexities. This past eight years has been marked by uncertainty, and navigating through that uncertainty was a constant challenge. If I seemed ambivalent about life, deep down I was anything but a struggle in feeling caught between two places, a well, a well 20-something-year-old who should be starting out in life on this upward trajectory and a sick person with an incurable, life-threatening illness. But through this process, I was forced to humbly learn how little control we truly have over our own lives. I'm okay with admitting defeat because while I know I fought as hard as I could, this life is not all there is. My time here is limited, but I do not fear the lack of it because who I am is not defined by how I spent that precious time here on earth. What I achieved or what amazing experiences I had doesn't matter there are so many things I didn't get to do and experience in this life. I'm loved by God. I do not have to worry about whether my life was enough because Christ has made me enough. And I'm going into an eternity that offers more that I could ever imagine on this earth. As I enter my last days, I'm at peace. I can't say that I'm without fear, but I'm not afraid. I have hope for what lies ahead, redemption, and that I'm being brought home. Wouldn't you love to? I'm looking forward to you guys meeting back in heaven. Then quoting C.S. Lewis, she wraps up with this, this is, that is what mortals misunderstand. They, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. What a way to die. <laughs> I want to die like that. She has a profound confidence in her King, in her Saviour, Lord Jesus, and the paradise that He has to offer her. I said before, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray a prayer. And, and these words aren't magical words. In fact, they're, they're quite simple. I'm just going to be saying thank you, sorry, and please. But maybe today, maybe today you would like to pray that prayer for the first time and receive this free gift of paradise that's on offer for you. I'm going to give you some space to, to repeat 
the word silently uh, in your heart. Uh, if you're a Christian, maybe just pray this prayer to be reminded of what Jesus has done and the hope we have. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the king. Thank you that you died in my place on the cross. Thank you that the offer of paradise is there. Sorry for living a life of ignoring you and not acknowledging you. Please forgive me. Remember me as you are already in your kingdom. May I face death with hope, longing for this paradise with you. In Jesus' name, and if you agree, say amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.